This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision. Do you know when the first e-book was published? While we're still on information technology, Australia's best-selling author, Bryce Courtney, launches his latest novel tomorrow, but don't bother looking in the local bookshop. It will only be available via the internet. While American author Stephen King has already made his e-book debut, Bryce Courtney is the first big-name Australian author to take the plunge and embrace the latest technology. When you come along with a new technology and you say, this is going to replace the book, you need to be awfully careful because we have a perfect piece of technology in the book. I don't think the internet book will replace the book. It will extend the book in a sense. That first Australian e-book was published in 2000, but I was astonished to discover that the very first e-book was actually published 50 years ago. The e-book has turned the book industry upside down in the decades since then, and in this rear vision, we'll see who's gained and who's lost along the way. That first e-book, a digital version of the US Declaration of Independence, was published in 1971 by Michael Hart, the man who started Project Gutenberg, the world's oldest digital library. This is a great story. Michael Hart was at the University of Illinois, and he knew a bunch of people that were involved with the computers of the university. My name is Greg Newby. I am the director and CEO of the Project Gutenberg Literary Archive Foundation, which operates Project Gutenberg. And he managed to get some time on one of the big mainframe systems at the campus. But he wasn't really a computer programmer, and he wanted to give some thought to what he could do with all this time on a really neat computer system that not that many people had access to. And it was a computer that was on the internet, something called the ARPANET, the early predecessor of the internet. So he gave it some thought, and famously on July 4th of 1971, he realized that he wasn't going to be a great computer programmer, but he was really very good with literature, very interested in literature. And he was given a copy of the U.S. Declaration of Independence at a local convenience store on July 4th. And he decided in a flash of insight that he would type it into the computer, into the mainframe computer, and then share it with everybody that was on the network, the ARPANET of the day. So by the end of the day, on July 4th, 1971, the ebook was born. Hart's idea was that Project Gutenberg would make freely available digital versions of books no longer in copyright. But the internet didn't exist then, and computer technology was pretty primitive. You didn't even have upper and lower case print. In the early days, ebooks were plain text. And in fact, the very earliest ebooks, like the one in 1971, was all uppercase because lowercase hadn't been introduced to the computer systems yet. So they were not really all that friendly for readers in uppercase. But in later years, when you had uppercase, lowercase, you could also use things like underscores and ampersands and slashes to indicate things like italics and bold. And so they were stylized text, but they were still plain text, basically all the things that you could do on a typewriter. So this is really perfectly suitable for most literature. You know, most of the books that you pick up today even are just plain text. They might have cover art, they might have some drop caps or sort of special characters. 
on the page, some different font sizes. But for the most part, books are about the text. And so in the early days, you would only get the text. And it wasn't really until the middle 1990s that we much more frequently were adding images to the ebooks using HTML language of the World Wide Web. So from about 1971 to maybe 1994, 95, almost everything was plain text. Project Gutenberg is set up a bit like Wikipedia. The work of building the digital library was done by volunteers who transcribed the books. Yes, in the earliest days, ebooks were created by typing them in. And of course, this is how books were created in the first place. You would have an author that would have a typewriter, or maybe they were even writing something out longhand, and then someone else would type them into a publishing system, you know, going all the way back to the movable type printing press and the monks copying the books throughout the ages. So text was how books were created and how they were copied and distributed. And so to make an electronic book, people would take the printed physical book and lay it next to their keyboard, you know, their computer keyboard, and they would type it in. And they would add a little bit of styling if necessary. So they might add some uppercase at the beginning of chapters. They might add extra spaces between chapters. So they were not entirely limited to just the words and just the letters. They could do a little styling, but fundamentally they were doing transcription. They were transcribing a printed book into a digital version of that printed book. More and more authors are venturing onto the internet with their books, but until now, most of the ventures have been done through publishing houses. Now the publishers may be quaking in their boots because one multi-million seller has decided to cut out the middleman. Publishers don't like it because even with riding the bullet, when you have the reader or when you have the encryption, it's like retro glue, it's like retro binding. They're still trying to create books where the whole means of production is sort of in the hands of the guys who run the business in New York. Stephen King's Riding the Bullet was the first e-book by a big-name author to bypass the traditional publishing route. Published in 2000, it predated another game-changer, Amazon's e-reader, The Kindle, in 2007. We had the internet and the technology to duplicate a printed page on a website. E-books had gone mainstream and anybody could publish a digital book. There was a self-publishing industry with print books, but that's been made much more efficient and much more extensive with the rise of e-books. And in fact, in the last year, about 20% of writers have self-published a book as an e-book. I'm David Throsby. I'm a professor of economics at Macquarie University in Sydney. And mostly e-books also come out at the same time as traditional print books. And so we have found in our survey that just over half of all authors published a print book last year with a traditional publisher, and just under a half of all authors also published an e-book. Now, a lot of those would be just simply parallel, because often a publisher will bring out an e-book edition in association with a print book edition. But the thing that's most sort of striking is that self-publishing has really grown because it is so much easier for authors to get their work out. There are a number of self-publishing platforms that people can, if they have a book that they want to to publish, they can can publish it through a self-publishing platform and make it available through the internet. And there's never any way of telling how they're going to go. But every now and then, a book that somebody who might be quite obscure has written and just gets picked up on the internet and can suddenly take off. So it is something which has really changed for authors, this opportunity to 
to publish something which they have control over and which comes out quite straightforwardly through one of these self-publishing platforms. That's something which is quite a lot of benefit to authors because there was often a lot of complaint about gatekeepers in the publishing industry and that getting through an agent or through a publisher's representative to being published was often quite a a long, difficult, arduous process and not always a, a very fair process. And now the internet has made a level playing field of the whole thing and so that the books can be out there and they're judged in their own terms. The notion of self-publishing has been particularly interesting to genre authors, people like romance writers and so on, whose readership seems to like electronic books. And so that as a sort of subset of the total publishing industry, the, the, the romance writers and other genre fiction writers have done very well out of electronic publishing. It's given them a sort of market niche, which they've been able to exploit quite a lot. More than 50% of romance, mystery and detective fiction is now bought as ebooks. On the whole, I think that authors just simply adapt. And what's happened is that the arrival of ebooks has drawn writers into publishing when they might not otherwise have had the opportunity. In the case of established authors who have a sort of established uh, track record with a traditional publisher, they also do benefit from the arrival of ebooks because there's usually an electronic version of a print title that, uh, that the publisher might publish. And so that just extends the sales further. They don't get quite so much in the way of royalties because the selling price is lower, but nevertheless, that extends the, the market for the book that way. So for those sorts of authors, it's, it's, it's probably been advantageous. And the other thing to say about the arrival of the electronic formats has meant that authors have much better ways of communicating with their readers. And this is something which authors have exploited quite a lot, particularly the genre fiction authors. They can establish um, chat groups and all sorts of things. And there's quite a lot of opening up of channels of communication and also channels for promotion of books through the electronic media, through the social media that weren't there before. Over the last decade, publishing has undergone incredible consolidation. In 2013, the six largest publishers became five and may soon become four. The publishers have established a role in the industry which they serve very well, and that has to do with editorial input, it has to do with promotion, it has to do with distribution, and these are, even in the electronic environment, these are things which still are still there. The publishers that are most adversely affected by the electronic developments have been the, the sort of small independents because it's more difficult for them to keep up with the changes in the markets. They don't have the same resources to be able to adapt, although many of them have, of course, and and do, the bigger publishers who have been tending in any case to take a larger share of the market, as happens in most industries, the degree of concentration in the publishing industry has been increasing over the years, as it has in most other industries. That means that those larger publishers have the resources to be able to adapt. And often if they're a part of of a global publisher that has access to sort of international expertise and facilities to do this. The the independent local publishers who are, in fact, responsible for a lot of the, the local publishing, particularly in, say, literary fiction, 
not explicitly, of course, but importantly, they are publishers that find it more difficult. And so I think they, in the future, their sort of continued existence is, is a little bit more problematical. But overall, I don't think there's likely to be any great change in the role that publishers do and provide to the book industry. And of course, one should never make predictions too far ahead. And economists are notorious for making predictions that turn out not to be right. I mean, I'm sort of reassured by the fact that there has been this plateauing in the demand for for print books, and that uh, print books will still maintain a share of the market, which um, will continue despite these ongoing electronic developments. And we don't know where they're going to lead in the future. But I think we can still say that a print book is a print book, and that's it. And there are certain sorts of print books, of course, which can't really be done in any other way, which is sort of glossy travel books and so on. But looking ahead, I think we can see that the industry will continue to adapt and evolve as it has done. You're listening to Radio National's Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips. As the e-book turns 50, we're looking at the winners and losers in the digital world of books. Although many of the steps in book publishing have remained the same, the process of e-book distribution has generated a totally new player in the book industry. In the past, book jobbers, wholesalers, would buy books in bulk from publishers and sell them on to libraries and bookshops. These days, publishers of e-books and audiobooks sell the digital distribution rights to third-party vendors, companies like Overdrive, the US company that owns Libby, an e-book platform you might be familiar with if you're an Australian e-book reader. This hasn't been good for libraries. With e-books, we need an intermediary because we can't just put it on the shelf. It needs to sit somewhere. I'm Sue McCarricker. I'm the CEO of the Australian Library and Information Association, which means that I work with all of the libraries across Australia, whether they're public libraries, school libraries, academic libraries. So we buy library books through platform providers, and there are about three or four of them who are the major players in Australia. And that's really taken us away from that direct relationship with booksellers, with publishers, and By buying through these platforms, instead of buying a book that you're then going to own forever, what we're doing is buying a license. And for libraries, that license might mean the number of loans. So it might be that 26 loans and then we stop owning it and we have to buy it again if it's been popular. Or it could be a two-year arrangement whereby it's a time-related thing. So it's a very different model buying e-books from buying print books. It can make the experience for the library user a little bit clunky because what you find is that if a library, for example, subscribes to several platforms, then you go in, you look at the catalogue and actually you're then sent out to different platforms depending on which book it is that you want to borrow. Now, we're getting over those technical hurdles through our own library management systems, but it's just that we want to make this the best experience for users and that's not always easy with these technology platforms. Libraries can buy print books in bulk and have the right to then lend those books to any number of readers free of charge. That's not the case with e-books, where even the price of the book can vary according to demand. I think there was a point where people felt that we might move entirely to e-books, and this would have been about 10 years ago when e-books really started to take off. But what we've realised 
over time is that they're just another format. So we do like audiobooks, we do like large print books, we do like ebooks, and we do like print books. So instead of it being an either or, what we found is that publishers are publishing both. So we're able to buy the books as print format. We're also able to buy them as ebooks. What's interesting really is that a print book has a price and we all kind of know what that price is. $32.99 is a bit of a price point. There's another price point just under $20. With ebooks, the prices are very much about demand and supply. If it's a bestseller, then the prices are going to be higher. So it just makes a bit of a different model for libraries in terms of what we purchase. And we have to purchase in multiple formats. So if you've got a really great book that lots of people want to read, instead of you only having to buy the print, what we're now having to do is buy it in various different formats. Perhaps the most astonishing thing about the relationship between the ebook platforms and libraries is that the ebook is usually more expensive than the print version, and in the case of academic books, often a lot more expensive. Ebook prices, you would think, would be cheaper because they're technology. You don't have to print it, you don't have to distribute it in the same way that you do a print book. But in fact, they're more expensive. So what we find is that for a fiction title, a popular fiction title in a public library, for example, we're seeing a price premium of about 31% per loan. So we, we look at things at how much it costs per loan. It's costing us nearly a third more for an ebook as opposed to a print book. And in nonfiction, it's about 12%, again, through a public library. What you find is that pricing varies as well, depending on whether it's simultaneous loan to a number of users at the same time. And certainly academic libraries do that multiple users model more often. And that means you can be paying three-figure sums for one book because it's being used multiple times. It's not necessarily that publishers set out to make as much as they can from libraries. But obviously, publishers are struggling with understanding this model where an ebook could exist forever, whereas a print book, once it's got a bit stained and a bit used over time, has to be replaced by the library. So publishers are trying to work out what the pricing model should be. But at the moment, it's just too much for libraries to be able to afford. The increasing demand on libraries for ebooks not only means a strain on library finances, but also limits the opportunity to keep the back catalogue of an author's work. And ebooks borrowed from libraries don't provide authors with the small royalty they get when print books are held in a library. Authors, particularly those mid range authors, not the big sellers, but the mid range authors, every year get a cheque from the Australian government or probably not a cheque anymore, it's probably a bank transfer, but they get a, a small payment, which is called the public lending right. And that is because their books are held by public libraries and loaned by multiple people. And it's a really good thing that has supported authors who on average only earn 12000 a year from their writing. So it's a really valuable extra amount of money. Now, as we move into an ebook environment, and certainly as libraries are buying more and more ebooks, that payment doesn't apply to ebooks. So, what we're hoping will happen is that the government will introduce a digital lending right so that whether the book is print or digital, that author will receive a payment for the fact that it's held in a library. 
payment comes from the Department for Communications and the Arts. So it's an arts minister payment. Um, it's very well established. It's actually a world-class system. A lot of other countries have public lending rights, but they look to Australia because the way it's handled is really good. It's about just over 20 million a year that is expended on the lending rights. So it's it's a reasonable amount of money. And as I say, for some authors, it's a really welcome amount of money they get each year that really keeps them solvent. As many as 200 Angus and Robertson and Borders bookstores could be closing their doors with the prospect of thousands of job losses after the parent company, the Red Grip, was placed in voluntary administration late today. A debt mountain, the growing popularity of online book buying and digital formats are behind the chain's financial woes. I think it's incredibly sad. I think the publishing sector will be mortified to know that this particular chain, which is the largest retail chain in Australia, has now found itself in administration. Bookshops have been badly hit by the popularity of e-books, and we've seen how libraries and authors get squeezed along the way. But what about readers? You can buy an e-book from Amazon for less than a dollar. Surely that's a good thing. You don't own that thing when you buy it. What you buy, for the most part, is a temporary, limited license to use that thing in only the ways that the seller allows you to, and only for as long as the seller allows you to. And if you hearken back to the days when you had vinyl and even CDs and tape and all these other ways of getting music, well, when you were done with it, you could bring it down to the used music store. When you're done with your book, you could bring it down to the used bookstore. With digital rights management, you have no such capability. So you're pretty limited as a reader, as an author, and as a reseller in what you can do with these digital objects. Of course, the solution that Project Gutenberg has is for everything to be free and just give it away. But that's not going to put bread on the table of an author. That's not going to keep a publisher alive. It's not going to keep a bookstore open. Those places rely on having commerce. And Project Gutenberg has nothing against that. Individuals and companies charging to get access to their works. The shift, though, has been that those works are not resellable. They're not something that even the, the first purchaser actually owns. And the experience that I've had is you buy something some content, or maybe you buy a device and put some content on the device, someone along the line goes out of business or gets acquired. So suddenly the company that you bought it from doesn't exist, or they're a new company, and you discover that something that you used to be able to do, you can't do anymore. The Apple Computer Company and major book publishers are being sued for conspiring to illegally increase the prices of electronic books. The US Justice Department and 15 state governments say the executives of the companies involved worked together to eliminate competition. You know, as a result of this alleged conspiracy, we believe that consumers paid millions of dollars more for some of the most popular titles. Three of the companies allegedly involved have reached a settlement with the government, but Apple, Penguin and Macmillan are likely to fight the lawsuit. The publishers eventually settled their claims for $166 million, while Apple lost at trial and paid out $400 million to consumers. A similar case was begun against Amazon earlier this year. 
But despite these kinds of controversies, e-books are here to stay. Their share of the market had peaked in 2014 and then plateaued, but they've enjoyed a surge in readership thanks to the pandemic. A quick search shows sales up by as much as 20% over the last year. I think the trade-off has overall been for the good, for the improvement. The reading experience on a digital reader has a lot of advantages and not too many disadvantages. The main disadvantage is what I talked about earlier, which is that you might have limited ability to actually own it and do with it as you will. So one of the great things about a book, printed book, is when you're done, you can give it to somebody else. With an ebook from Project Gutenberg, you can also give it to somebody else. But ebooks from most digital publishers on your ebook reading device, you can't do that. But in terms of the reading experience, the electronic book has a lot to offer. For people with various vision impairments, you can make the font bigger or choose a different font if you'd like to. You can very easily do highlighting, markup, annotation. You can very easily skip around in the book, uh, do searching in the book. These are the types of things that are kind of limited in print books. You can highlight them, but you can't, for example, say, okay, automatically bring me to the next section that I annotated or, or highlighted. So I think there's some neat advantages of electronic books. One of the things we talked about in early days was, well, can you take it in the bathtub? And these days you can. My ebook reader is waterproof, water resistant anyway, and doesn't suffer from the dampness of being in a bathtub. When I read at night, I have a backlit book, so I don't need to turn on the light over the bed and bother my wife with my late night reading. So there's some really pretty neat advantages to electronic books over printed books. And this is not even counting the, the storage space. I still have many boxes of books. I've downscaled over the years, but many boxes and shelves worth of books that I have carried around with me because I think they're valuable for various reasons. But in my digital library, I have hundreds, if not thousands of books, and they take up essentially no space, no additional space beyond the reader itself. So I think the reading experience is not for everybody, and the transition from paper books to ebooks might be a transition that some people choose not to make, and I, I'm not here to convince anybody. But I do think there's a number of advantages and really very few disadvantages. Around about 2013, when I think a lot of us got Kindles for Christmas, I started reading online. And I think I experienced what a lot of people do, which is love the convenience, love having ebooks that you can carry a whole armful of books around on a tiny device. But there are limitations as well. Lots of people say you can't tell how far you are through the book easily. Whereas with a print book, you know you're halfway through. It's just a different experience, a different reading experience. So certainly for disposable quick reads, ebooks are great. But where I've got something which I really want to hold on to and have for a lifetime, then I'm going to go out still and buy the book. One of the things that we really need to do is make sure that the Australian voice is still heard. So we're still supporting Australian writers and illustrators and not being kind of drowned out by a whole load of content coming in from other English-speaking nations the UK and US being the primary ones. In the print book world, we're pretty good at, at having Australian writers. In the ebook world, the danger is because there is so much content available online from the US particularly, that we lose a little bit of our national identity there. It has been observed that there's a basic 
the demand for print books, which won't go away. But there was all this thought that when e-books were introduced into the market, that um, the print book had had its day and would disappear off the shelves altogether. And of course, that hasn't happened. There has been a decline in the sales of printed books relative to e-books, but that's flattened out now. And I think that there's a baseload of demand for print books, which won't change over time. That's for all the reasons why people want print rather than electronic versions of things. It's something to do with authenticity. It's the same reason why the cinema hasn't died out with the advent of video or um, people still go to art galleries rather than looking at art exhibitions online. People want the real book in their hands because it has something authentic about it as compared to an e-book, which is just a sort of electronic thing on a screen. David Throsby, a professor of economics at Macquarie University. He's running an ongoing survey of the Australian book industry. Thanks to him and my other guests, Sue McCarricker, the CEO of the Australian Library and Information Association, and Greg Newby, the CEO and director of the Project Gutenberg Literary Foundation, which operates Project Gutenberg. You'll find tens of thousands of free ebooks on both their Australian and US websites, as well as instructions on how to download them. Isabella Tropiano is the sound engineer for this rear vision. I'm Kerry Phillips. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.